You know, we're living in very interesting times. I think that's probably an understatement. Whenever you look at what's happening in the world, a lot of things are happening. We're living in a very interesting time from the standpoint of history and Bible prophecy. Because it appears we're, very, we're living in very significant times when it comes to Bible prophecy. It's interesting, too, I think, that living in a time when prophecies are, appear to be coming true, that in our personal lives we're living very frantic lives, very hectic lives. Just think about it a little bit. Some of the terms that we use for our week. How was your week? That was a rat race. Yeah, I feel run down. I'm out of gas. I'm frazzled. Because we're living in such a rapid uh, pace today. And we talk about living life in the fast lane, where we try and do everything at once. Let me think about it. We don't just drive today. We drive and we talk on our cell phone. We listen to the radio. We watch our GPS. And if you're a mother, you're probably solving problems in the back seat between the kids. We're trying to do all these things at once. I can remember sitting in my office talking on my landline and the cell phone rings. And I've just been in the middle of answering emails and sending emails, and then somebody knocks on the door, and you think, well, now what do I do? <laughs> I remember a story told on a lady one time. She was carrying a portable phone from upstairs to downstairs, and the phone rang. She heard the thing ring in the house, so she lifted up the phone. It had been unplugged. <laughs> she lifted up the phone and said, hello. But life just goes so fast. I think we all understand that. We don't just watch television, a television program in the evening. We might watch two or three football games at the same time, and then during the commercial breaks we watch the weather, and then we check on an auto race that's going on. I mean, we do all these things at once. This is the world that we live in. We don't just go for a walk. We go for a walk with a Walkman sticking in our ears or an iPod or something and with our cell phone attached to our belt so that we're ready for whatever happens. You know, this is the world we live in today. This is not God's world. The Bible says this is Satan's world. And he's got us all running around in circles. He keeps our minds so busy that we don't really take time to think, or we don't have time to think. Is that true? You know, it is. I've found that weddings and funerals, especially funerals when someone dies, <clears throat> you do have a few moments to talk with people about some of the most important questions in life. You know, why are we here? What is the purpose of human life? Where am I going? Where am I going to be 10 years from now? Do the priorities I have today, will they make any difference at all 10 years from now? You know, these are things we need to think about. These are need, things we need to think about, <clears throat> about things that really matter. You know, about 25 or 30 years ago, Mr. Armstrong, the man who was very instrumental in raising up the modern era of the Church of God, was saying things before he died. One of the themes that you may remember if you were around at that time was we need to simplify our lives. Here was a man who was born before the Wright brothers flew their first airplane flight. 
before radio became a big thing, before television became a big thing, before the Internet, and there really was a world before the Internet, <laughs> before the space shots. Here was a man who watched these things happen, and he saw the consequences of those things happen. And he said, against that backdrop, we need to simplify our lives. And he was not talking just about eliminating things. He was talking about focusing on those issues that really are important. What is really important in your life? Think about it. What are some of the most important things in your life? And one of the reasons people don't think about these questions that much is because the world has been told that there are no answers to questions like that. You know, we don't know what truth is. We don't know what the purpose of life is. We don't know what the future holds. Well, there's a book that reveals the future. There's a book that talks about the purpose of life. There's a book that talks about what is important in life. About 25 or 30 years ago, I went back to school in a master's program, study health education, public health. We're dealing with human behavior. Why do people do certain things? How can you influence human behavior? How do you influ influence people's values? One of the concepts I came across in one of the classes that I took was an exercise at that time called 20 Loves. I would retitle it today called 20 Goals. But I would encourage you to think about doing this in your own life. I've done it from time to time. List the 20 most important things in your life right now. Go home do this. 20 of the most important things that you would like to do during the rest of your life. 20 of the most important goals that you might have. 20 of the most important things you might want to say to someone. Make a list. <clears throat> Think about it. I'm giving you away the punchline, so it's going to take away some of the uh, the punch, so to speak. But make a list of 20 things, things you'd like to accomplish, do, or say, the 20 most important things in your life. Then ask yourself another question. If you only had one year to live, would you rearrange, how would you arrange your priorities? List the 20 most important things and then ask yourself the question. If I only have one year to live, What's going to be the most important things I need to do? Then ask yourself another question. If I have one month to live, would I change my priorities? How would I adjust my priorities? Then ask yourself another question. If I have one week to live, how would I adjust my priorities? It's a value clarification exercise to help a person kind of focus on what really is important in one's life. I think it's a sobering exercise. It's, it's, it's a positive exercise to get us to think about what is really important and to prioritize our goals, our hopes, and our dreams. Now, we can do this from a human standpoint. I mean, what's the most important thing to you as a human being? 
But you might ask the question, what is the most important thing from God's perspective? What are God's priorities? And how will his priorities affect my priorities? We're going to talk about Bible prophecy a little bit today. How will certain Bible prophecies impact your life and your priorities? Will they have any impact or will they have a big impact? What is really important to you? Think about that. You know, these are things that God is concerned about. He talks about pondering the path of our feet. Where are we going in life? What are your priorities? <clears throat> you know, the Sabbath is a time when we understand it, that God has given us to actually back off from this rat race and stop and think about what is really important. God gives us that time. One of the reasons that we don't think about these big things is because we have forgotten a very fundamental principle that God has given us in the Sabbath. Well, I'm too busy. I've got things to do. I've got this to do. God says, knock it off. Take some time to think. He says, do that every week. Analyze your priorities. Think about it. God gives us the holy days to remind us of his plan and his purpose. And I've encouraged people over the years at the feast, go take a walk by the ocean. Think about why are you here? Where are you going to be next year? What will a year's difference make in your life? What goals do you want to set? In the feast, or the, put it this way, the, the holy days of God give us an opportunity to ask questions of ourselves. Am I planning my life in light of God's word, in light of God's plan? And will I be ready when Jesus Christ returns? Because that's what the Feast of Trumpets pictures. Am I preparing for the coming kingdom of God? Or am I doing other things? Will I be ready? You know, the Sabbath is not a burden, as some people think today. It's really a blessing. But, you know... <clears throat> Working very hard, I got good grades. Then I learned about the church and about the Sabbath. And that meant taking one day off a week. Because my first year in graduate school, first, well, about the first year, I think, I, I tried to study seven days a week. And I found after about a month or two of that, I couldn't put any more into my head <laughs> after about six days. When I started keeping the Sabbath, I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to do this and, and, and pass these classes. Well, when I took Friday night off and Saturday off, Sunday I was ready to go. Whereas before I was running out of gas on Sunday because you can't just stuff more and more in. And I found it really did work to take time off, time to think, time to plan, time to focus. I want to talk just a little bit about the Sabbath. Because God has given this to us as a blessing to actually take some time to think. To take some time to think. I want to run through this rather quickly so you can jot down some notes if you want, but I think many of you will follow in your mind. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, God created the Sabbath day at creation by resting. He created it by resting. He stopped working, He rested. 
And the Bible says he sanctified the Sabbath. He set it apart for special use. And then the Bible explains how to use the Sabbath. He rested from all his labors, it mentioned. You know, as human beings, I think we've all had this experience. I think many of you probably have. If you have rearranged your house, if you have uh, uh, re-landscaped your property, if you've washed the car, you've baked the cake, uh, you've made a dress or something, what do you do with it when you're done? Throw it in a closet and forget it. No, you admire it. (laughs) You admire it. There's a certain amount of satisfaction looking at what you've done. I remember when our boys were little, I don't know, probably seven, eight, nine, it was a Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning, they wanted to go play football in a neighbor's yard. I said, let's, let's not play football yet. I'd like you to stay here, and we're going to clean up underneath this big deck that we had. Oh, Dad, no, we want to go play football. I said, look, I was going to make them do it, and I realized they're not going to do it by themselves. So I said, let's us clean up under the deck. So we worked together. And we cleaned it out. And when it was done, one of the boys said, Dad, that really looks good. It really looks good. They had this feeling of satisfaction considering what they've done. When God was done creating the earth, he rested. He said, this is good. Nebuchadnezzar looked out over Babylon. He said, look at Babylon that I have done. God was working with them. He was focused on his accomplishments, and that was quite the wrong, wasn't quite the right approach. But there's nothing wrong with pausing and reflecting you know, on your family, on what you've done through the week, not only reflecting what you've done, but where are you going? Where are you going from here? So this is the blessing that God really gives us, a chance to reflect, to savor, Uh, to consider what we've done. Exodus 20 says, remember the Sabbath. Don't forget it. Think about it. Plan for it. Look forward to it. It's a time when you close a drawer and you think about other things. And if you do that every seven days, you're going to be able to stay focused. He says, don't do routine work on the Sabbath. Take a rest. Leviticus 23, verses 1 and 2, talks about the Sabbath being a holy convocation. Now, a convocation is a commanded assembly. Whenever I went to college, we had a required assembly. It was called a convocation. It was a Presbyterian school. Every Wednesday, we had to be there. We were given three unexcused cuts in semester. After that, they began to lower our grades by a letter. They meant you to be there. It was a required assembly. It was a convocation. God says the Sabbath is a holy convocation. It's a worship service to worship God, to keep us focused in the right direction. Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14, very interesting couple of verses. It talks about the Sabbath is a delight. It should be a delight. When our boys were growing up, you know, we didn't you know, hit them over the head with the Bible all the time on the Sabbath. Sit down, shut up, don't breathe, this is the Sabbath. Oh, great. (laughs) What a wonderful blessing. (laughs) No, sometimes we go downstairs and wrestle on the floor for a little while. And we talk about biblical principles. My wife would make a pleasant dinner. We tried to make it a delight. We tried to make it a delight. 
You know, if you take time on the Sabbath to think about where am I going, why am I here, and you get focused or refocused, you're going to come out of that Sabbath feeling like, all right, let me go now. (laughs) I've got a focus. I've got a direction. And God gives us that opportunity if we'll take advantage of that. I want you to notice something. Let's turn to Psalm 121. David is called a man after God's own heart. Now, David was a shepherd. He spent time in the fields watching over sheep. You know, driving across Kenya. We were talking about that in the announcements. Uh, Mr. Mathomas said uh, he traveled 420 kilometers from Nairobi. That was not over four-lane interstate roads. (laughs) That was traveling over two-lane roads, and you look over the edge where the, the shoulder should be, and you drop off about six inches. And you hope and pray that the bus coming down in the middle of the road going like this (laughs) will slow down to let you by without having to go off on that shoulder. Because you may drop six inches off the shoulder, and then as the road has been built up, you'll roll six more feet down the hill. So those are the type of roads that they travel over there. But traveling out to western Kenya, we went through uh, some of the Maasai country, and you'll see some of these guys standing there in the field with one foot up on their knee like that. and their spear and their blanket over their shoulder, and they're watching the sheep to keep animals away. David had plenty of time to think when he was watching sheep, but notice what he thought about. And this is what I want to focus on. In Psalm 121, verse 1, he says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills and ask the question, from whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Last week we took some of the grandkids to a <clears throat> a, um, a planetarium. There we go, senior moment. <clears throat> but we looked at the heavens through the telescope and we watched what was happening up there. I can remember doing this a number of times through my life, walking out on a dock one time by a lake and looking up at the stars. And it really tends to put you in your place. You see this heavens that goes on forever. And you realize, I'm just a little thing down here on this earth. You get up 35,000 feet in a plane. You look down at all these little ants running around down there. Big semis look like a big ant. (laughs) You can't even see the people. And yet we get carried away sometimes by our own importance. God sees from a, a, a distance in space. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens, rolled them out, and the earth. He will not allow your foot to be removed. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he keeps Israel and shall not slumber or sleep. David was focused on God. His creation, being in contact with his creation, helped him to understand God and appreciate God. You know, if all we do is ride in our car back and forth to work, watch a TV monitor and send emails and stuff like that, we're going to lose sight of God. It's not going to be a real world. You know, we need to get out and walk and, and have contact with the, the creation of God. Let's go back also to Psalm number one. Maybe as you read some of the Psalms, do this periodically. Think about the mind and the perspective that David had. What did he think about? What did he talk about? What did he write about? Psalm number one, blessed is the man or the person who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. 
Blessed means to be envied. Things are going to go better for the person who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And we've got a lot of scornful people today. (laughs) You believe in God? You believe the Bible? Come on! This is the world we live in. Let's be honest about it. But his delight, this person, is in the law of the Lord. Is in the law of the Lord, the laws of God that are there for our benefit. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. We've seen what's happened to trees around here when they weren't watered the last couple of years. They dry up and die. This is the analogy David's talking about. Down in verse 4, the ungodly are not so. In other words, they're not blessed. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, and there is a judgment coming. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. This was just one of the things David was focused on. Psalm 8, verses 1, and then 3 and 4. These are some of the things David thought about when he was watching the sheep. He wasn't just sitting there sleeping. He was writing psalms. This is where his mind was. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You who set your glory above the heavens. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? Who are we as human beings? What is man that you are mindful of him? Why do you care about us? Why have you given us your laws? What's the purpose of human life? And the Son of Man, that you visit him. For you've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Paul quotes these verses in Hebrews and makes the statement, we don't yet see all things under our feet. That's coming. That is coming. You know, Jesus inspired John in the book of Revelation that we're going to be kings and priests and reign on this earth. Do you believe that? Are you excited about that? The apostles were. But a lot of people today don't even know it's there because these are things that are not being spoken about today. And I think a number of ministers and people that hope to be ministers are going to have a lot of things to answer for because they're not preaching from the Word of God. But this is what David was focused on. I lift up the hills or lift up my eyes to the hills. When do you do that? You don't do that when you're fighting traffic. You do, you're going to wind up in somebody's trunk. You've got to pause and reflect and look upwards and outwards. Remember a number of years ago, we were chaperoning a women's club and a men's club up around Lake Arrowhead. About 50 kids. And they'd rented this big uh, chalet. And when we got up there, one of the Friday evening, one of the students came up and said, could we play some, some Sabbath music? I said, well, sure. Is it time to relax and rest? And I noticed the, after the first record had played, the next one wasn't quite so Sabbath <laughs> in, in uh, tone. And I thought, I'm just going to leave this go and see what happens a little bit. So the next one was different, the next one was different, the next one was different. 
The next morning, uh, it was still different. At about 2 o'clock, we had a Bible study. And I said, you know, you guys have lost out. You have missed an incredible opportunity. I said, you came up here to get away from things, and you brought your music with you. And before you went to bed last night, it was boom, 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 that type of thing. I said, you could have walked out on the deck, watched the moon come up over the lake, listened to the wind blow through the trees, and had a totally different experience. You could have got up the next morning, watched the sun come up, burn the mist off the lake, listen to the birds and the trees and everything as they woke up. Said so you could have had a totally different experience that would put you in contact with God and his creation. Said so you missed out. After the Bible study, nobody went near the record player. <laughs> but I wanted them to learn a lesson rather than me up there preaching at them. Because sometimes we learn when we lose something or miss something. But this is what David was thinking about. He was thinking about looking up, getting in contact with God's creation and with God. He was focusing on the bigger issues of life. You know, Jesus got up, Mark chapter 1, verse 35, early in the morning, well before day, found a quiet place and prayed to make contact with God so that he could make it through the day. You know, do we do that? We have the opportunity to do that. But Jesus was focused on big issues. In Acts chapter 16, Interesting concept I want to introduce here. <clears throat> because it's talking about apostolic Christianity, how the apostles functioned, what they did, how their lives were organized. Acts chapter 16, Paul and his party sailed from Troas uh, to Samothrace and then came the next day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi. Philippi was a major city in Macedonia. In verse 13, it says, On the Sabbath day we went out of the city to a river where prayer was customarily made. Apparently there was no synagogue in Philippi. You had to have at least ten male heads of households to have a synagogue. So apparently nothing there. But what did they do on the Sabbath? They went out by a river. What do you do when you're by a river? You sit down and you think and you watch the water go by. You can meditate. You get closer to God. That was what they did. They found some other people there, and they talked about God's way of life. In Acts chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, actually point verse 2, this says, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them uh, for three Sabbaths and reasoned with them. This was a synagogue full of Jews. Paul, as his custom was, was following the example of Jesus Christ, kept the Sabbath. It was a worship day. It was a day to think, a day to focus. You know, there are many people today that don't bother with the Sabbath, but the early apostles did. And these things were changed a couple of hundred years later. Let's go next to uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 16, because Luke has written both the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and he uses this phrase, once in the book of Luke and once in the book of Acts to basically send a message. In Luke 4.16, it 
It mentions that Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Paul was following the footsteps of Jesus Christ. That's why he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. But I want to notice here, what did Jesus do when he went into the synagogue? He was handed a book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he opened up the book, he found a place where it was written. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and is quoting Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to preach an acceptable year of the Lord. This is towards the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, but what was he talking about? Well, God loves you, and I love you. No, he was talking about prophecy. He says, the scriptures that I'm reading, these prophecies that I just read, notice in verse 20, and he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and all the eyes were on him. He began to say, today this scripture, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. His message was about Bible prophecy. He said, what I just read to you is being fulfilled right in front of your eyes. Now, Jesus talked about love. He talked about forgiveness. But here in a sermon towards the very beginning of his ministry, he's talking about prophecy and prophetic events that are coming to pass right before their eyes. In John chapter 14, this is a scripture we normally read on the Passover. Jesus told his disciples, had them focus on big things, focus on the future. In verse 3, he said, If I go, I, excuse me, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I'm going to come back. You know, Douglas MacArthur, when he left the Philippines, he said, I will return. You know, in January, he had a chance to stand by that statue and by the dock where he left the Philippines. And he came back and was involved in the liberation of those islands. Jesus Christ told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I am going to return. I'm going to come back. Many people don't believe that today. Well, it's, it's, it's metaphorical. It's just symbolic. Well, what do you believe? You can go to Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, the two angels that were with the disciples whenever Christ ascended into heaven. They said, you're going to see him come back in the same manner in which he left. They saw him leave. Matthew 24 indicates people are going to see him return. It's going to happen. And it's going to shake people, I think, to the core of their being when they see these things. But focusing on big issues, what do you believe about that? Is it metaphorical? Is it just a story? Or does the Bible mean what it, uh, what it says? Jesus said, I'm coming back. I'm going to prepare a place for you. We heard in Sermonette. There's going to be a crown. There is a crown reserved for you. You know, when I was being fired a number of years ago, I poked the guy in the ribs and told me I was being fired. It was kind of like, you can't have my crown. That was what I was thinking when I was being relieved. <laughs> but these are things we need to think about. 
prophecy is being fulfilled before our eyes today. Jesus said, I'm going to return. Let's go to, go to Mark 13, which is one of three chapters in the New Testament to talk about events that are going to take place before Jesus Christ returns. The last couple of chapters of Mark 13. So it's one thing to give your heart to the Lord. It's one thing to trust God. It's another thing to trust what God has said. Jesus said in verse 35, Watch, therefore, for you don't know when the master of the house is coming, using that analogy. In the evening, at morning, <clears throat> or at the crowding of the, or at the crowing of the rooster, lest coming suddenly he finds you asleep. The implication is Jesus Christ is going to return when people are not expecting his return. He's going to come suddenly. Why aren't they expecting his return? Well, you don't believe the Bible, do you? You don't really think that's going to happen, do you? That's the atmosphere today, especially in academic uh, circles. You don't believe that book, do you? You don't believe it really means what it says, do you? You find that in the media today. This is why people are going to be surprised. They're going to find out the Bible actually means what it says. Again, how is that going to affect your priorities when you think about these things? What we're told is Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to return suddenly, especially in the world's concept of ideas. Well, I've been busy on my job. I've been busy doing this, busy doing that. I, I, I wasn't expecting this to happen. A lot of times we don't expect things to happen, but they do. God loves us. That's why he's given us these prophecies to understand what's coming so we can think about those things. Matthew 24, let's go there, and then we'll begin working from there. Jesus has told his disciples, I'm going to return. I've gone to prepare a place for you. There are crowns reserved for you. The 12 of you are going to sit on thrones ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. What was their response? Oh, Jesus, tell me another one. No. <laughs> their response was, when are you coming? And how will we know when you're coming? Read for yourself, Matthew 24. Verse 2, Jesus said to them, <clears throat> Do you not see all these things? Talking about the temple. The time is going to come when uh, you, one stone is not going to be sitting on another one. Now as they sat on the Mount of Olives, and again, when you get up on a hill, you can look out over things. You can begin to see a bigger picture. And we all need to do that from time to time. Get up on a hill <laughs> and look around. And think about, why am I here? Where am I going? What is happening around me? We actually had a chance of sitting on the Mount of Olives at one point in time in the past. Very inspiring to be in places like that. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately and said, they didn't say, Jesus, tell me another one. These are good stories. You know, these are very humorous things. No. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How are we going to know that we're getting close? Now, Jesus did not say, oh, bless your little hearts. Just trust me. 
and it'll all work out. You know, it might be tonight. It might be tomorrow night. It might be a hundred years from now. It could be a thousand years from now. Just, just be, be positive. No, he went down through a list of things. A list of things. I want to start with the top of the list, and we'll probably not get any further, because I want to focus on the top of the list. I want to focus on some religious events that the Bible said would occur before Jesus Christ returns. Many people criticize this section of Scripture and say, look, we've always had earthquakes. We've always had famines. We've always had racial problems and things like that. Well, there are religious events taking place today that we haven't always had. There are things taking place today that the Bible has talked about for centuries. And they haven't happened before, but they are happening today. And this is where we need to focus. Because if we don't, we're going to be caught short. What is one of the first things, or the first thing that Jesus mentioned? Verse 4 and 5, it says, Jesus answered and said, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, I am a Christian, I am a minister of God, I am this or that, and will deceive many. This is the first thing that he mentioned. I know critics say today, well, this little church of God, the other people, are, they're silly. You know, they're, they're deceived. Well, that doesn't fit with the Scriptures. Jesus said, many will come in my name and deceive many. The assumption is mainstream Christianity is okay. Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, they're all right. But these, these little fringe groups are just right off. Jesus said, many are going to come in my name. Dr. Meredith has used this analogy. The Church of God is like a half of a peanut shell in the Pacific Ocean. We're tiny. But there are two billion Christians in the world. Revelation 12.9 says Satan has deceived the whole world. That would include two billion Christians. That would include about four billion non-Christians who believe in anything and everything. See, that is a much clearer fulfillment of what the Scriptures say than just this little group of people that are deceived. You know, he came up or came across a book. Somebody ordered it here. Mr. Ames, was that you? Somebody did Entitled Pagan Christianity. Authors are Frank Viola and George Barnett. Barnett has done a lot of studies. These people have nothing to do with us. The subcaption on the back. This book makes an unsettling proposal. Most of what present-day Christians do in church each Sunday is rooted not in the New Testament, but in pagan culture and rituals developed long after the death of the apostles. We've been saying that for 50 or 60 or 70 years. Here's somebody else saying the same thing. I'm surprising what he doesn't talk about. He gets baptism right, pretty much. He said the early church didn't baptize infants. They baptized adults. He says nothing about Christmas, nothing about Easter. He doesn't really get into doctrine that much. But he's got a catchy title, and his title is correct. But he doesn't begin to to elaborate where he could.
But Jesus talks about religious events. And I want to look at some of these religious events because things are happening today that are sobering. They're exciting in one sense, but they're also very sobering. Because the Bible has talked about these events for years and they're coming to pass today. As I mentioned, mainstream Christianity assumes that you know, we're wrong, we're, we're weird, because we're this little group. And yet when you follow the biblical instruction Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 to prove everything, to prove it, look into it, check it out, and then hold on to what's good and right and true. You know, when you study the name of the church, I think most of you know these things. What is the biblical name of the church? Not Roman Catholic, not First Methodist, not Seventh-day Adventist. It's called the Church of God. First Corinthians, three or four times. Paul said, I persecuted the Church of God. He wrote to the Church of God at Corinth, the Church of God at Thessalonica. We went through the old church up in Newport, Rhode Island. What did they call themselves? A church of God or a church of Christ? Now, they're referred to today as Seventh-day Baptists, but that's not what they referred to themselves. They didn't come up with that name until about 1820, something like that. But you can identify people that appear to be part of the church by their doctrines and in part by their name. The early church, the apostolic church, kept the Sabbath. They kept the holy days. They tithed. They did those things. It wasn't until after the apostolic period that these other practices came in. And this is a matter of history. And it's there for anybody that wants to dig into it. The church of God in the New Testament is called a little flock. A little flock. A persecuted group of people. Not a big world-girdling organization. Now, that's the Scriptures. These are things that we can look into and prove. But notice again, take heed that no one deceives you. The implication is there are going to be many people that believe they're right, but they are deceived. And this can be proven. Then it goes into wars and rumors of wars and so on. But what else does the Bible tell us about these religious events that are going to be taking place just as we approach the end of the age? Let's go to Revelation chapter 6. Again, when you read commentaries about the book Revelation, especially Catholic commentaries, I remember I got one one time, and basically they reprinted the text of the book of Revelation with some stained glass pictures, and that was their correspondence course on the book of Revelation didn't explain anything. You just got to read it with stained glass picture. <laughs> Pictures on the same page. It didn't explain anything. And some people say, well, you can't understand the book of Revelation. Well, you can understand it. Revelation chapter 6 talks about the four horsemen that are going to precede the coming of Jesus Christ. These four horsemen can be matched up with the events that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24. The first sign that we're given in Matthew 24 is false teachers coming in the name of Jesus Christ and deceiving many. The first horseman that we read about here in chapter 6 of Revelation, verse 1, Then I saw the Lamb open the seals, heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, 
And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. You can go to the Bible handbooks and commentaries, and some will say, well, this, this is Jesus Christ trying to convert the world. That's not what the book says. You know, when you begin to look into this, the rider is on a white horse, has a crown, but he has a bow. Jesus Christ is not described in the Bible as having a bow and arrow, but there is an individual who is described that way. In Ephesians chapter 6, and I believe it's in verse 16, it talks about Satan has fiery darts that he fires. So the Bible has a very different description of these events. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, and also Revelation chapter 19, verse 21, it talks about Christ having a sword, and the sword comes out of his mouth, and the Bible is a two-edged sword. So the rider on this horse has a bow and arrow, not a sword. This is not Jesus Christ. This is a person or an organization that is deceiving people and claiming to be a representative of Jesus Christ. You you look at the Pope as he walks around. He wears this big crown. Uh, A lot of descriptions begin to fit these... A lot of events begin to fit these biblical descriptions. It's going to conquer. The implication, this is going to be a militant form of Christianity. You don't go along with the program, you're going to answer. You're going to suffer. A militant form of Christianity. So this is something that we need to be watching for. A militant form of Christianity that's going to begin to persecute persecute people that are preaching the truth, preaching things that are different, preaching things that are biblical. Let's go to uh, 2 Timothy. I was listening to a sermon about a year ago by a colleague I used to work with as a minister. A very interesting sermon. It was about prophecy. He said, I've read through the New Testament and there's just not much prophecy there. And I thought, what New Testament have you been reading? (laughs) What is Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 all about? We're going to read a couple of chapters here in in Timothy and and Thessalonians. And what's the whole book of Revelation about? There's quite a bit of prophecy in the New Testament. And it amplifies what is in the Old Testament. And it can be understood uh, more better. Better. (laughs) When we use the Old Testament. So if we go to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is talking about the end of the age. So know this, in the last days, perilous times, difficult times, stressful times, troubled times will come. And talks about people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous. But down in verse 5 it says they will have a form of godliness. They will have a form of godliness. They talk about Jesus. They talk about doing good things. But they deny its power. The Word of God doesn't have any power today. I remember reading about this Episcopal bishop that was ordained as a 
or a fellow was an ordained as an Episcopal bishop up in New England, New Hampshire, Vermont, somewhere up there. And he was gay. And I had an interview with him, and he said, look, there's only a few scriptures in the Bible that talk about this subject, but we need to push on through. We just need to push on through, and you need to get to know me. I'm a wonderful person. But God said this stuff is an abomination to God. You know, it totally perverts the concept of marriage. But he's saying, you just, just, just don't worry about that. Get to know me. See, the Scripture said they will have a form of godliness, but they'll deny its power. Oh, you don't believe in Bible prophecy, do you? <laughs> that hocus-pocus stuff? You know, it mentions in first what is it first Thessalonians five nineteen don't despise prophecy don't take it lightly don't despise it learn from it but it says the last days perilous times will come they'll deny the power they'll deny the authority they'll deny the reality of the scriptures it does mean what it says but the time is coming Paul mentioned that they're going to deny all of this don't pay any attention to it. This is the world we live in today. This is the world we live in today, where these things are taking place. You know, the Bible talks about remember the Sabbath. The Pope is telling people, remember Sunday. Remember Sunday. Those laws are on the book in Europe today. And all they need to do is activate those things. And people are not going to be able to work on Sunday, they have to work on Saturday. These things are happening today. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Wait a minute, let's go to one other one here. First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians five verses one through eight. Another one of these New Testament uh, chapters, almost that talks about prophecy and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Chapter five of First Thessalonians. Notice what Paul zeroes in on. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should have to write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that they must have been talking about these things. The day of the Lord uh, will come as a thief in the night. And when they say peace and safety, and you can go back to Jeremiah, where he talks about at the end of the age, or talks about uh, you know people be saying peace, peace, but there is no peace. What do you hear on, <laughs> on television today? Well, peace conference here, peace conference there, but it's not happening. It's not happening. When they say peace and safety, then suddenly, or then sudden destruction comes upon them. As the labor pains on a pregnant woman, you know, if you're waiting to have a baby, you know you have certain dates in mind, but once the pains start coming, and they start coming regularly, I remember whenever it was our second child, I was trying to mow the grass while my wife was preparing for the baby. And uh, I'm out there trying to get this grass done. And all of a sudden, she had been on the, on the couch kind of watching. All of a sudden, she disappeared. I realized things are happening. <laughs> Better quit mowing the grass and get inside. But Christ uses the analogy. Then suddenly, these things are going to happen. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. <laughs> you shouldn't be surprised. You've been told these things. It's all there in front of you. Verse 6, Paul is saying the same thing Jesus Christ said. Therefore, don't go to sleep as others do, but let us watch and let's be sober. 
who's talking about this day is going to come suddenly. Let's go now to 2 Thessalonians. Very interesting chapter. Paul talks again about the coming of Jesus Christ. He says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and his ga- and our gathering together uh, to Him, we ask you, do not be shaken in mind or troubled if you get a letter that purportedly comes from us as though the day of the Lord has come. Uh, don't let anyone deceive you. Christ said the same thing. For that day will not come unless two things happen. Two major events have got to take place before Jesus Christ returns. Unless there's a falling away comes first and a man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now these are two things to watch for. And Paul says Christ is not going to come until these things happen. Two major events. Now the idea has circulated, I think, within the church of God that the the falling away could be the 100,000 people that are not here. You know, we had 150,000 people or so that kept the feast uh, prior to 1995. After that, our numbers are running maybe 30,000. Okay, was that the great falling away? Could be. Your time will tell. We'll have to see. I think it's interesting, though, if we look at the whole context of verses here, as Dr. Meredith mentioned, uh, if we are one half of a peanut shell in the Pacific Ocean, the world is not going to notice what happened within our organization. Could the falling away within the church of God be a foretaste of something that's coming, a forerunner of something that's coming on an even bigger and massive scale? We need to think about these things and not get locked into one particular view. If you look at this term falling away, and the word is apostasy, and I think internally we tend to think, well, the apostasy, they're leaving the truth. But look up the word. Apostasy means a falling away. It could mean uh, a rebellion. It could mean a rejection of the authority of God, a rejection of God's way of life. Uh, It can also mean abandoning a previous position. It can mean a number of those things. But the point I want to make here is Christ is not going to return until those two very conspicuous events occur. A great falling away, a final falling away, a great rebellion, and a man of sin being revealed. And the implication is that man of sin is going to be involved in this this falling away. Some people felt Mr. Dukach was the man of sin and he led this rebellion. Well, when I heard that, I thought, come on, that's, that's not quite big enough to, to have this kind of an impact. But notice some of these things. <clears throat> the son of perdition who exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple. Uh, it talks about uh, this lawless one in verse 8 person that's not following the laws of God, they're doing other things. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Satan is going to be behind this person with all power and signs and lying wonders. And it appears these powerful signs and lying wonders are going to contribute to this movement of people in a direction away from God. Away from God. You know, I had a chance to be in Fatima 
a couple years ago with Mr. Hernandez. And back in, I forget the dates on these things, uh, what, 1820 or something like that. They had a vision. A couple of these girls, shepherd girls, had a vision. And they saw a vision of Mary and lights and stars were spinning and various things. And every year on the anniversary of that sighting, they get thousands of people, thousands of people come to Fatima to hope to see another vision. When Mr. Hernandez and I were there, they were just completing or working on a a 10,000-seat auditorium with underground parking and everything else. They're, They're preparing for something up there. If these things begin to happen, people have another sighting at Fatima and maybe some other sightings in Poland on the wall of a barn or something over there. You've got both sides of Europe begin moving together. And the implication, things are going to happen. Satan's going to be behind these things. And it appears these powerful signs and wonders are going to lead people in a certain direction. This appears to be something we need to think about because they will be rebelling against God. If they start following the Pope and rejecting the Sabbath, moving towards Sunday, and a bunch of other things, when the world begins moving in that direction, we need to think about these things. With all unrighteousness, verse 10, and deception among those who perish because they did not receive a love of the truth. If we ask another question, who's going to be preaching the truth at this time? It's going to be the church of God. It's going to be the two witnesses. And by rejecting what they're saying, people may move in this direction. You know, Nimrod led a rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel. And they decided to do things their way instead of following God's way. So we need to think about this. What we're told is Christ is not going to return until these two major events happen. Now, what happened within the church of God may be a foretaste of something even bigger. They're talking today about we may see a reversal of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was a landmark of history major division in the church. And if we see a reversal of that, which we're seeing today, this is going to have an impact all around the world. Major things. So this man of sin is going to be doing lying wonders, deceiving people. People are going to, if they follow that, they're going to have to reject God's way. They reject God, period, because they're going to be worshiping another person who claims to be God. Let's go to Revelation 13 quickly. Revelation 13. This is talking about two beasts. One comes up out of the sea. One comes up out of the land. The sea beast appears to be a revival of the Roman Empire. The point I want to focus on in verse 3, it says, The world marveled and followed the beast. The Europeans, in putting together the EU, when they formulated the legislation for the euro, they did that in, in, uh, in, in Aachen, Germany, which was one of the uh, 
headquarters of uh, Charlemagne. And they said, we felt like Romans. We felt like Romans the day that we signed this agreement. Angela Merkel was really was recently given the Charlemagne Prize this past year of the person who has done the most to unify Europe. They're living with traditions over there. And those traditions are very much alive. But it says the world marveled and followed the beast. They're going to have to follow the beast because if you want to trade in Europe, you're going to have to follow the the uh, administrative rules that the Europeans have put together. They know that. They know that. The world is going to have to follow them in that sense. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast and worship the beast. Now the second beast I want to focus on quickly. Verse 11, saw another beast coming up out of the earth, having two horns like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast and causes the earth and those who dwell on it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs. This is the guy that was talked about in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs. If the Pope begins doing things like this, well, people are going to look to him because nobody else is going to be doing things like that except two witnesses that will be doing something very similar. Verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast uh, should speak and cause as many as not worship him to be killed. Now, they may have a statue that uh, may speak, but that's probably the small part of that. This is talking about an individual and an organization that promotes the beast, that makes it come together. You know, if the Europeans can't pull things together, the Pope is in the background. He's offered, numerous popes have. We are here at your service. We have something to offer you. We have the glue that will hold you together. It's going to be interesting to see where that that goes. But it's talking about these two beasts. It talks about a mark of the beast. It'll affect their right hand and their foreheads. You know, we've said over the years, and we've not been the only ones, that this mark of the beast may be may involve Sabbath observance, because this is what has happened historically. The 300s and 400s, uh, Easter was introduced. Uh, Sunday worship was came along a little bit earlier, but those people that wanted to continue keeping the Sabbath after a couple of those church councils were not allowed to hold property their property was confiscated they either went along with the system or they lost see it speaks like a a lamb but it acts like a dragon well let's all be together you guys that aren't in real churches which is what the Pope is saying today you need to come with us let's dialogue but if you don't you know off with your head this has happened before and implication is going to happen again. A quote I came across a number of years ago. The guy said, history repeats itself, but not until after it changes a costume. In other words, not exactly the same way, but it does repeat itself. Sunday observance may be part of this mark of the beast. Uh, 
you know, various uh, Protestant leaders down through history, Luther and Calvin, felt that the Pope and the papacy were the second beast. You know, many Christians today believe that. This Protestant minister down in Texas, John Hagee, had been preaching that, that the Pope is actually the harlot of revelation in the papacy and the Catholic Church. Apparently he backed John McCain, and then he was called on the carpet, uh, do you really believe that? And he didn't want John McCain to lose, so what did he do? Well, we don't really understand that verse. He backed off. He backed off from preaching what I think he really does believe is the truth. God told Isaiah, one of the prophets, he said, you cry aloud, you spare not, you show my people their sins. What's God going to do with a guy who knows what the truth is? Well, we're not quite sure what that verse means. So uh, you know, they backpedal. God can't use a person like that, even though they may know the truth, but they're not preaching it. Revelation 17, quickly. <clears throat> and this gets to the, some of the verses that uh, Mr. Hagee was involved with. talks about the judgment of a great har- uh, harlot who sits on many waters over many, many people with the kings of the earth committed fornication. You know, there are a number of articles that you can read about the diplomatic core of the Vatican. The diplomatic core of the Vatican. They've got ambassadors that go various places. said the three leading people in the downfall of uh, the Russian, of the communist, communist Russia was the Pope, was Margaret Thatcher, and Ronald Reagan. But Pope was listed as the leading person. See, they have been involved over the centuries with the kings of the earth, and they're going to continue to do that. With whom the king of the earth has committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have made drunk with the wine of her fornication, her doctrines, her teachings. So he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, saw this woman sitting on a scarlet beast. You know, and the, all the cardinals of the Catholic Church wear scarlet. It's not hard to figure out what this is talking about. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones. If you go through some of the treasuries of the cathedrals in Europe, what do you see? You see the robes of the bishops. And what do they look like? They're studded with precious stones and gold and jewels and things like that. You know, we don't wear things like that. (laughs) But the Catholic bishops down through history have. The Pope today wears those things. These scriptures come alive. The woman's were arrayed in scarlet and all these precious things. On her forehead was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. Or if you're a mother of harlots, who are the daughters? If you study Protestant church history, the mainstream uh, denominations of Protestantism call themselves the seven sisters. Sisters have a mother. They're daughters. Where did they come from? They came out of the Catholic church. You know, these are things that the Bible talks about. Let's look at one other concept and then we'll begin to close. This mother of harlots is going to be doing things toward the end of the age. In Isaiah 47, it talks about a daughter of Babylon. 
Many of you that came into the church years ago read a book entitled The Two Babylons and showing the parallel between the Catholic Church and the religion in ancient Babylon. But in Isaiah 47, it talks about this daughter of Babylon and what that daughter of Babylon is going to be doing. Isaiah 47, verse 1, Come down, sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon, sit on the ground without a throne. In other words, it's going to have a big come down one of these days. Verse 5, Sit in silence and go into the darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. There was a Catholic chapel at the airport in Ireland. And there was a title for the uh, the name of the chapel was, I think, the Lady of Kingdoms. It was there. You take a picture of it. Who's this talking about? Many of the practices were based on a mother goddess in Central Europe. Verse seven: You shall, and you said, you shall be a lady forever. Your Rome is called the Eternal City. Verse 8, therefore hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who will, who will dwell securely, who will, say, who will say in your heart, I am, and there is none else besides me. You know, the Pope issued a uh, statement, uh, it was last year sometime, said that Protestant churches are not real churches. They're not real churches. The Catholic Church is the only real church. These are things that are happening today. If we can just grasp these things, realize these things are real. They're happening. They're coming to pass. You will say there's none other beside me. I will not sit a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. I'm not going to know a loss of children. The implication is there's going to be an effort to bring everyone back together. We don't have time to go through a whole lot of these clippings, but... If you just notice what's been coming across the news services, the Pope calls for religious exchange, the pontiff to attend interreligious meeting. Pope Benedict says interreligious research and dialogue are not mere options. They are vital today. We have got to get everyone back together. says the Russians are suddenly accepting Vatican uh, delegations that were cold-shouldered in the past. Greek patriarchs are approvingly citing Pope Benedict uh, XVI. And evangelical Christian leaders applaud his writings. This is what's happening today. Pope Benedict met with the prelates of the, uh, uh, must be the Eastern Orthodox Church here in Belgrade, to remind them that Christ wanted his church to be open to everyone. Another clipping says Christ wants one church today. These things are happening. Meets with the Greek Orthodox Patriarch. Jewish leaders meet with the Pope. Another one uh, here from, uh, in Cairo. A uh, cardinal visited the Grand Imam, who is acknowledged as the highest religious authority of nearly a billion Sunni Muslims. And this representative is meeting with the Pope. This is what's happening today. Some other clippings here talks about the Pope demands respect for Sundays. So you've got to keep Sunday, not the Sabbath. Another one from Israel. 
A recent poll found 56% of people in Israel support the uh, 56% among the Israelis for proposed legislation making Sunday a day of rest and allowing the public some sort of allowing public transportation and entertainment on the Sabbath in Israel. This blows your mind. There's a Time Magazine article, March 21, 2005, Hail Mary, Catholics have long revered her, but now Protestants are finding their own reasons to celebrate the mother of Jesus. You can't believe these things are happening. I want to conclude with one very interesting source. What is happening in Protestant circles today? There is a movement to unify the Protestant organizations with the Catholic Church. Uh, this came from uh, it was some, several articles in Christianity Today talked about an ancient future faith. What they're saying is the future of Christianity involves going back to the past and pulling things from the past, incorporating that into our church so that we can grow in the future. They look at church history very differently than we do. This particular one of these authors says that uh, there are about six eras of church history. The first was primitive Christianity, the apostles. But ancient and classic Christianity spans from about uh, 100 A.D. to about 700 A.D. And that is what they're talking about going back to when they talk about going back to original Christianity, not, not apostolic as we talked about. As one Protestant uh, author mentions here, he says they're introducing mystical practices uh, to develop a, a deeper level of spirituality. A uh, number of the books that are on the market today since that time of these publications of these books, the race has been on to return Protestants to the mother church. The distinctions that have been recognized between conservative Protestant and Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches since Luther and Calvin have been rapidly disappearing. In other words, what set them apart is churches. They're sweeping under the rug. The mood of the moment is not only that the three traditions, this is Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, can learn from each other, but that they can be reunited. How so? Certainly not through returning to the Bible and biblical doctrines, because that will keep them separate. But if we can put our doctrines on the back burner and see them as secondary issues at best, the return to ancient practices and creeds, prayers, confessions, Lent, whatever, we can recognize our our communality in the ancient church. We will therefore be able to identify with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ despite insurmountable doctrinal differences. Don't worry about what the Bible said. Just push on through. (laughs) And let's talk about our traditions and we can all be together. The point I want to make, brethren, this is happening today. This is happening today. Religious issues that Jesus said would dominate the end of the age are taking place today. The Sabbath is a time to think about what is happening around us. Where are these things going? And I would encourage you to ask some questions of yourself. Where am I going to be in five years? 
where am I going to be in 10 years? If these things really do come to pass as it appears today, how is that going to affect your priorities and your goals for the next couple of years? Let's look at one scripture and can close. Matthew 24, towards the end of that chapter, after Jesus talked about the sequence of events that is going to take place before Jesus Christ returns. He offers several warnings for those that have ears to hear, for those that have eyes to see. Matthew 24, beginning verse 32. Now learn this parable of the fig tree. When its branches have already come tender, puts forth leaves, you know the summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, an ecumenical movement developing, an emphasis on Sunday, a revival of the Roman Empire, economic conditions that could change tomorrow. So also when you see all these things, know that it is near. That is the time. The return of Jesus Christ is near and at the very doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation, the people that are alive today, will by no means pass away till all these things are fulfilled. What do we do when we see these things coming to pass? You might want to go back and read Acts chapter 2. Because the people that Peter was speaking to on the day of Pentecost had seen and heard Jesus Christ and the apostles preaching. They saw Him crucified. They saw Him resurrected. And they said to Peter, what do we do? Where do we go from here? Peter said, repent. Get your life in order. Think about the big things in life because these things are coming to pass. Brethren, the Sabbath is a time to think about the big things in life. Marriages are wonderful times. Funerals are times to get together. They're times to socialize, and these are all good. But the Sabbath is also a time to think about the big issues of life. Why are you here? Where are you going? Where do you want to be when Jesus Christ returns? Will you be ready?